Hello and welcome to episode 13 of No Blueprint featuring Jolene Mitten, model, producer, community support worker, as well as the founder of Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week. Jolene, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. First thing, I definitely want to pay my homages. So, uh, you know, I want to thank the creator for all things to align for us to connect here today. I want to pay homage to the land I reside on, the traditional territory of the Algonquin people. So big shout out to our Algonquin relatives. And I want to thank our audience. So anybody who's tuning in from wherever you are, I appreciate your support. We appreciate you listening. And I think this is just a great opportunity to hear amazing stories from incredible Indigenous people who have made it in their industry in whatever fashion that might be. And uh, once again, I want to thank you, Jolene, for taking the time out of your day, out of your life to be here and be part of this No Blueprint legacy. I, I really appreciate your time. So thanks. Thank you again. Hi, hi. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, uh, let me check in with you. How are you doing personally through these COVID times? Oh, um, well, I just got back into the city. I was up in uh, Wet'suwet'en Territory and Hazleton and Terrace, um, kind of, I don't know, like in the bush a bit. Uh, did some berry picking, some cedar bark pulling, uh, shot a couple guns. I just got back to the city, so it's kind of like overwhelming to be away for like a month and a half and then be back in the city and rushing around and now being on uh, on a Facebook live event. So just trying to like get back to city level, which has been really interesting. And going out into the bush, is that part of your way of just like rebalancing and finding time through these, these COVID moments that we're going through? Oh, totally. Yeah. Like, I don't know the city at, at like right now is, is just kind of obviously during COVID it's pretty hard and pretty lonely. And Thankfully, uh, like I am, I'm not sick or anything like that. And I was able to travel up there and uh, be with family. And that was really like, yeah, really grounding to be outside in the wilderness and like not having to think about COVID every five, 10 minutes and seeing the news and not being attached to anything besides like waking up in the morning and seeing a moose in your front yard. Right. Like that stuff is, uh, yeah, that stuff is really been really helpful during this time. I actually saw that on, I think it was on your Instagram feed. I saw how close you were to that moose was just grazing around, hanging out. I know, it like, cool. it's pretty sick. Like, I don't know. Um, the dream is to live in like two places, like the city and, cause like the city is my home. I grew up in Van City and East Van. And then um, being able to like live somewhere where uh, you're kind of isolated in a way from like all the stresses of the city. So that's, that's the dream. Disconnect to reconnect. Mm -hmm. You Makes know. Sense. Mm -hmm. So uh, take us back a little bit and share with us where are you from and where are your parents from? Okay. Well, I'm Cree. Uh, both of my parents are actually Cree. My mom is from the Sarwage Reserve, but uh, she's a 60 scoop. And uh, we, she, my, my grandma came here in the 50s um, and then have my mom here. Uh, on the downtown east side on the 100 block if you know where the 100 block is in Vancouver it's like uh, the epicenter for the opiate crisis so uh, she was born in the Patricia Hotel and uh, she was taken away like two days after she was born and so my mom's issues with like addiction and uh, identity it's been a, a huge question for her and for like myself 
Um, but yeah, we, we were born and raised in East Van and we love it here. Uh, Vancouver is our home and uh, yeah, it was just like a really interesting childhood for sure. I would ask you to take us back a little bit before the age of 15. Mm -hmm. What was your childhood upbringing like before you were like early teenager, before you were 15? Oh, like it was like pretty crazy. Like I'm pretty sure my story is pretty similar to a lot of people. Like there was a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, um, but there was like a lot of love too. And the, like the thing about my family, like we always used to celebrate, like have events. So like there was always, like I grew up in a party, like a party house, right? So I enjoy like a good party. You know what I mean? Like my family knew how to celebrate birthdays and have like barbecues and um, just like, be together, even though if it might have been dysfunctional, right? I still like, I grew up in a party house, so I just enjoyed the celebration of that. Awesome, awesome. Mm -hmm. um, talking about parties and celebration, I'm gonna, this is really inside information, but uh, I was, was browsing, browsing through some of your social and there was some type of blooper that you were doing and it was talking about two braids, you oh, and your girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> so just taking us back a little bit. Yeah. Damn what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, it was just, we, for, because I play on the, all my relations basketball team here in Vancouver, the women's Vancouver Indigenous team, right, so we have uh, parties about twice a year to fundraise to go to All Native every year, because it's, uh, to send up about 12 girls, it's about $8,000 to head up to that tournament I was talking to you about just before we started this live podcast, right. um, so yeah, just learn to celebrate and like, make it like sustainable in yeah. a way right because people want to you know it's like during even in like back in the day you would go to the trading post or you go to the tournament or you go to the rodeo and you meet like your you know your significant other right like you know the, the olympics like there's so much like meeting of people all the time and that's kind of like what our people been doing since time immemorial right true. so true mm -hmm. So now, as we've kind of taken a small trip down memory lane, at the age of 15, describe for us what took place while you were waiting in line for some free juice. Oh, what took yeah. place at that moment at 15? Oh, um, I was approached by like, a, like an agent, like a, from a, a modeling agency. I think it was John Casablanca's at the time. And honestly, I wasn't, I, I was kind of like dumbfounded because I just didn't, I didn't know I was attractive. I just knew like I was thin and like just waiting in line for juice. I wasn't expecting anything and not to be like whisked away to Taiwan and have my whole life changed within like a few months. Like that was totally out of the blue for me because I didn't, I never wanted to be a model. Like modeling was something I didn't choose to do. I to be honest, and I don't even want to say this here, but it's like, I wanted to become a police officer. I was, I wanted to be a police officer and I wanted to play basketball at UBC. Like those were my dreams at that age. So uh, here I had to lose like, I don't know, couple, like a couple pounds and which is like not good for basketball. You have to be, you have to have muscle, right? Fact. And then, yeah. And so it just totally took me for a loop and like, obviously like a bit of a culture shock living in like Taiwan for and all over Asia but you get used to it and I'm really appreciative of the experience so you got approached by a modeling scout 
at mm-hmm. the age of 15 while standing in line for some free juice, modeling in a sense, chose you. Mm-hmm. What, did, what did he say? Like, what was that interaction like? I'm just curious for oh. you know, personal sake. Yeah, it was actually a female. Okay. And she just asked to take a photo of me. And then I was asking for my mom's, like, uh, what, who my mom was and if she didn't have my phone number. And I'm like, at the time, I was like, are you crazy? Like, I'm just here for like a juice. Um, this is before Instagram. This is before Facebook. This is before any kind of social media. But yeah, this was way before all of that. So it's like not even my repertoire of like thought. Like it wasn't even something I wanted to do. So yeah, you can just imagine like me, a model, like what? I have right. like, like, I don't know, I'm just like some native girl with like dreams of be helping people, but not in a way that, yeah, I just, I was, I'm just happy that it kind of ended up like this. Cause I, thank God I never become a policewoman. Like that would have been terrible. My family would have disowned me. Like it would have been, it would have been terrible. It would have been bad. Mm. Mm-hmm. So how did you end up in Taiwan? Like, what was that journey like? When was that decided? And when did you take that journey? So after being discovered, I actually went to like this thing called Faces West. I don't know if they have it in Ottawa, but it's basically like a conference where they get, a, like, I don't know, 500 girls and they get to walk on the stage. It's kind of like a modeling contest. And if you are chosen, if you have a callback, because all these agents like Ford, Elite, um, Liz, uh, Bell, like all these agencies from all over the world, they come in. And they watch these girls um, who are on this runway and give like your headshot. And uh, yeah, they just take a look at you. And then they're like, they give you a contract, basically. That's basically how it happens. I go to this conference. I got maybe like 20 callbacks, which was really exciting. And then, um, yeah, like in Taiwan, like the next month, which was, uh, yeah, which was pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. And also like, to be honest, like I wasn't having a, a good time here in Vancouver. Like I, my family life kind of like the crazy party life kind of prepared me for crazy modeling life, right? Like if I can handle this shit at home, sorry for swearing. Sorry. If I can handle this stuff at home, then I can definitely handle like what is in store for me, which was a lot. <laughs> so it was a bit of like, my family was like the training day. And then when I got to modeling, it was like, oh, like, whatever was happening in the next room or like the casting couch, like I've already seen it all. So you can't scare me. Like it, it was a, it wasn't, it was maybe a culture shock, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't traumatic at all, which was, it was actually kind of uh, a saving grace. If you can understand that, like being away from other stuff that also can harm you at home. Yeah. Makes mm-hmm. sense. So what mm-hmm. was what was life like when you first arrived there in Taiwan being recruited as a as a model describe describe for us what happened when you landed and a little bit of your experience in the Asian circuit. Okay, well, I got Destiny's Child like track going <laughs> like, you know, uh, and arrived there and yeah, it's just like you arrive at the hotel. No one's speaking. No one's speaking English. Um, you're whisked away to the agency and like, yeah, your life is basically planned from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. at night, right? So you go on all these go-sees, castings, about 20 castings a day, and then hopefully you get a job out of one of those jobs. And if you get a job in Taiwan, it's like, not like Hong Kong or Japan. It's like very catalog work. So you're working 14 hour days, but you get a good pay cut for sure. 
but you're working like your ass off and also like you're getting judged all day because you're like oh you're skinny or you're too fat or you're not white enough or you're too dark or like something like that right which is at that age really stressful um but at the same time like I don't know like I did fit their market because everyone in my high school as well all thought I was like uh they knew I was native but they like people who didn't know they would always ask are you Chinese right like are you Asian are you half Asian and uh that's something that like in the future when I went to like my first modeling gig like they thought I was half Asian so that it made me in a marketable image for the Asian market. So they, they wanted that. They wanted someone who looked half Asian. So there was a lot of jobs for people who look like me. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite memories, favorite times being on the, on the Asian market? Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I partied with Mick Jagger uh, wow. at their Shangri-La hotel. This is before his, like um, his wife passed away. Mm. Um, in what was it 2003 when actually SARS hit that's when I was in Hong Kong because I because during SARS uh, Hong Kong took a big hit economically um so I like little entrepreneur I am like I'm gonna go there like I'm not scared of SARS I'm young I'm healthy and then I went and got a lot of work because all the models have left right um but yeah he was there to do a concert there with um, do you remember Tattoo? Remember tattoos back in the day? Barely. They're like, I, I don't know where they're from, but they're these two girls and they're running around in like schoolgirl outfits. But um, like they were there and some other band, but like the headliner was the Rolling Stones. And then at the time, you just, you hang out. Like thing is like, it's kind of like Zoolander. You're kind of invited to all the major events with all the celebrity types. So uh, there's, a, there's a, obviously a Shangri-La in um in hong kong and they had a big party there and i think i ate some pigeon at the party and it was like dope and he shook my hand and said my name nice to meet you jolene where are you from and i'm just like my mom like lost her shit right like she's a huge fan of the rolling stones and the thing is there was no this is before the camera phone right like this is before anything right like if you're going to bring it like and also they weren't allowing cameras into the the party you would have to give your uh five pixel camera and put it to like the side or whatever and yeah just like enjoy yourself which was something of the past now right like you can't really be in the moment now because everyone's recording everything but like having like being on the dance floor with mick jagger like i don't know right? many, many people who have done that but yeah SARS, baby. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, I want to ask you so many questions in that, like, considering we're going through COVID times, Mm -hmm. um, do you see any similarities between your time out in Taiwan and going through that SARS epidemic and what's going on here in in Canadian soil? Yeah, well, I was in Hong Kong when SARS hit, right? Like it wasn't Taiwan, but um, well, it's completely different here right like there's just so much fear it's like something that's all over the world um like i guess just like trying not to use like give into the fear has been really interesting and like like i said me disconnecting to reconnect has been really helpful and um i don't really know what's going to happen to the economy 
like in the next couple of years. Like I think indigenous people are resilient and we're going to be fine because that's, we've like, we survived smallpox and other diseases and stuff like that. But I just think like, yeah, just trying to, this is time to be healthy. This is time to get your vitamin C, your turmeric and your ginger mm. and getting your immune system really strong and like trying to cut out bad habits. Like this is, yeah, it's, I don't know if the creator is trying to tell us something, obviously. And if you believe in prophecies and the black snake and all those kind of other things, right? Like if you're, if you're keeping your ear to the ground, then, you know, if you're in tune, then you'll know what to do. Well said. So you were there for give or take eight years. You were on the Asian circuit. Oh yeah. Uh, 2000 to 2008. Okay. So what started happening that you decided to come home? I feel like I just honestly didn't feel very connected. Um, like I told you, my mom is a 60 scoop and my father is also indigenous too. And he, he like, he practiced his culture, but like, I didn't live with him. I didn't meet him until I was like 10. So uh, living over there and being told you look Asian and you're like being judged every day and you, you would have to reinvent yourself every day. And you're kind of this blank palette for people to kind of mold. So um, yeah, it just kind of leaves you kind of like wondering, questioning who you are. And that's kind of where I was when I was at that age, just kind of questioning like, okay, like I have, I'm living in a nice apartment in Asia, like a nice villa in uh, Thailand at the time and it's being like I don't know how I feel about having all this and not and being lonely still like having reach reaching a part of like at the top of your career like being on shampoo bottles and working for like major brands and not feeling fulfilled at all um that's kind of why I came back in 2008 and like the starting started working for my community um, as a community support worker and a doula for a couple of years and being trained all in-house at the PFNW, um, which is at the Pacific Association First Nation Women's, it's a long one. Um, and just like hanging out with families and just, yeah, reconnecting with just who I am. What do you think that emptiness was? Like, break that down for us just a little bit, because I think that is something a little bit more common than most people might uh, assume I think a lot of our young people uh, might be experiencing that same emptiness when they're trying to navigate this this world and society that we're living in so share with us a little bit of your personal experience of what that emptiness might uh, might have been and how mm -hmm. did you get past it yeah just like an emptiness of just looking and comparing yourself to others and um, well not having like a, a support system around you like I I have a family, but like having like indigenous elders kind of like come in and fill in the gaps for you. Um, yeah, just like chasing like the dollar is very empty. Like that was like my thing. Like, oh, if I get a job, I'll like my happiness will be here, which was a total like it was farce, right? It didn't that didn't exist. Like I had quite a bit of money and still very unhappy. Um, just thinking like out of ego rather than out of your spirit mm. is um, that I think that's what really was like, uh, cause being in the fashion game, it's super shallow and it's super confusing. And when you're that age, you're just trying to figure the world out at that time. And like, it's the worst now with social media. I can't imagine growing up in this age, 
right? Like it's, it's also really cool too, because you can get your message across like globally, but yeah, I just, I find that if you're chasing something that's ego, then you are going to end up feeling empty and lost. And that's why I came back. Cause I just didn't want to feel that anymore. So what did you end up chasing? Cause you came back and you could have easily went into like retail. Like why didn't you get into retail work? Why was it that you got into community support work? Uh, well, I think my grandma had a big part of that. My grandma was a community support worker on the downtown East side. And she, she is like my matriarch. She was hard nosed, um, grew up in like, the worst time as an indigenous woman, like she showed me a lot of uh, like who I am and like my strengths. Um, so part that's partially it. Like I, yeah, I just, she was, she was just awesome. She, and like her story was, is crazy. My, my grandma's story. She had no fingers and no legs. Right. And she was still helping her community and she was an indigenous woman. Like, I don't know enough said. Facts. So wow. yeah. So, in your journey um, working at the Pacific Association for First Nation Women, um, how did the young people influence yourself in your career? Yeah, like I guess, because I was working as a community support worker for so long and like going into homes of uh, distressed families and like uh, people that were on like suicide watch and uh, young mothers, like that was my first caseload of when I first started working after doing like in-house training at the PFNW um, for counseling work and stuff. Um, yeah, it was just like, it was all, honestly like super, like it was awesome for the first like few years, but when you like, you see families still falling apart and like you're giving up so much of yourself, which is healing in a way, but you, you, just, you just get heartbroken. You keep on seeing families getting pulled apart, right? So. Um, I asked to uh, work with the Urban Butterflies group, which is uh, ages uh, six to 14. And uh, that's when I, I think I felt like, okay, like this is where I should be. Like I, under, I can see myself in these kids because um, my mom's a six to scoop. And when we were, when we were young, cause my mom had me when she was super young, we were both in like the hands of the ministry. Like we, I grew up in a group home with my mom. Right. So seeing these kids going through the same issues of like identity li living in a place where you don't know where your next meal is coming from or you're getting taken away from a parent or trying to be taken away from a parent and that just like called to me and those kids were just like medicine they were so awesome and had so much energy and um yeah it was that's I that's when I felt like okay like I'm in the right place which I haven't felt I don't know in my almost my whole existence, I guess. Right. I wouldn't say that, but like, that's the last thing I can remember totally feeling get like, it though. yeah, totally you get it. it right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think an, another part of what you're saying, just to kind of um, segue into what you were saying earlier is that it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you working with young people was you then chasing spirit versus chasing ego. Oh, hundred percent. You made that statement. I think that's, that's a powerful statement that you made chasing ego versus chasing spirit. So elaborate a little bit on, on what that journey is like now. Are you still working with young people? And mm -hmm. what is your journey now in the sense of chasing spirit? Yeah, like all those kids grew up eventually, right? Like right. I've been in working with 
that same group of girls uh, for like, uh, it's coming on 15 years. So they, I've had some of them since they've been seven and then they're like 19 now, right? Wow. 21. And the thing is like being someone constant in their life, it just kind of brings some kind of grounding. I'm sure there's obviously as a young person, you're going through hell, right? But having like the one person that's kind of consistent in your life um, just makes the road less bumpy. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to provide for a lot of these girls. And now they're like 21 and these beautiful women, right? And trying to keep them close and like in the confines of, uh, or not confines, like in, included in a community is like been what I've been trying to do, like trying to keep them close so they don't you know go missing or you know what i mean right like totally we, we had uh in the program at urban butterflies we had two deaths uh overdoses um which kind of like brought me through a loop when i first started working with urban butterflies and um i had to go to the home and clear out um their one of the girls where she was living in a in a i guess it was a group home and yeah it changed me completely and just having to like something needs to be done like these girls don't feel like they're being seen and that's kind of like what catapulted like the next thing for me which was fashion week right so um before we get into that fashion week because what you're saying is is very powerful and and uh, an important topic i i can relate to you on some record in this uh, some accord in the sense of I worked as a digital as a youth diversion coordinator at the Wabano, which is an Aboriginal health center. So I worked with young people in conflict with the law. So mm -hmm. I relate to you when you were referring to that lifelong journey of support that our young people need. And I think that was one of that's that still is, in my opinion, one of the biggest challenges with the current system that we're that we have to work within when we are supporting our young people, because mm -hmm. there's um, clearly protocol in regards to how close those relationships get and uh, how much off the job interactions you have. But I mm -hmm. think from an indigenous perspective, those relationships are supposed to be lifelong um, if they if they last that way because some relationships come and go but mm -hmm. there's been you know relationships with young people that uh, far exceeded uh, my time at Wabano and was you know essential to their growth and their development so I think that's really uh, an, an important distinction to make in the sense of your longevity working with young people I think that's a very important aspect about the work that you're doing and and the impact that you're making in our young people's lives and so now from that um, you know, putting that into context, how how was it that you started developing fashion shows and creating these fashion events for these young people as an outlet? Like, what was that experience like for you? Well, I never told anyone I was a model, for one thing. Like, I never told the kids. I never told anyone I was working for. Because I would go into these homes when there's obviously a distressed parent. And, like, the last thing they want to hear is, like, oh, okay, you lived in a mansion one time? Like, no one wants to hear that, right? Um... And then having like the kids, uh, like we started losing them to, like they're young, they want to experiment with whatever, right? We started losing them and I just didn't know how to hold their attention with like, we, and I grew up with you beading crafts, like indigenous studies and stuff like that, right? But like this day and age, everyone's, you know, looking at social media, Hannah Montana, like at the time, right? Hannah Montana was huge. I, I guess that's Miley Cyrus now, right? But um, yeah, just having to compete with like the world and then your culture, like 
it, those girls who were coming into group, they were wearing like Disney princesses out like shirts and like stuff that didn't represent them. And that's like, I'm like, well, obviously they don't feel seen or heard. Like, I don't know, like, why don't we start uh, making button blankets? Cause a lot of these girls are West coast, right? Like button blankets are big here on the coast or like ribbon skirts for like the ones who are Cree and like, let's see, like basically they transformed. And once I told them that I was a model, like, I don't know, I had all their ears. I had their attention. Like I, cause I never said it before. They never knew. Cause I was just like someone who worked at the community center, right? Like, or like the girls group. And once I showed them like my portfolio and cause we were talking about like celebrity and all that. And I was just like, well, like, it doesn't really work like that and not trying to be like cocky or anything like that, but like, no, this, that's not probably not what happened in terms of whatever, right? Like they're, they're new to the world. So they have, they have no idea. Right. And then once I said, okay, well actually this is what it's actually, cause I've been to the Cannes film festival. I've, I've partied around celebrity, like, like I said, Mick Jagger, Bradley right. Cooper, Jamie Foxx and like all that kind of stuff right back in the day it was when I was younger. I'm a lot older now, but um, yeah, just having, that like wisdom and like oh and then I'm like yeah they were totally astonished and that's kind of like how I caught them again because they were starting to like go into whatever they were going into which was positive so caught them back and then uh once they I think they were because mostly the the urban butterfly group is like they're kids in care and when you age out of care you're about like 19 years old right so we had to make a new group called mentor me to like catch them again, because the, it goes uh, six to 14 and then 14 to 25. Right. So like they still need support even after they've, they're about to age out or they have aged out. And like, that's when a lot of people fall through cracks and um, yeah, that's kind of like how it all started. Once they became at the age of 18, we had our first fashion show at Trout Lake and it was during Aboriginal day back, this indigenous day now, but Aboriginal day back in the day, right? So, um, and all these little girls like ran to the stage, like it draw, it drew everybody in, but like these little girls to say all ran to the stage and they, they can see someone who looks like them, who, are, who is beautiful and it doesn't, is they're not really like a social media star or not Miley Cyrus or not, it's not Hannah Montana, it's someone who looks like them. That's when I knew like, okay, like this is something that I have to, really instill in these young girls lives that they're beautiful and they're indigenous and this is why this is honestly why i started fashion week it's like it's the base it's like the fashion part is cool and i i love clothes and i love making things i love slow fashion um i have like my own views about cultural appreciation and appropriation but like that is like the base the base was like okay letting those girls see who they are through what they're wearing has been the major reason why I definitely want you to share your views on appropriation and appreciation. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, um, I think what you're explaining is, is very significant. The significance of these young girls that you've been working with and finally having indigenous representation in a healthy way that they can look up to. So mm -hmm. before we move into appropriation and appreciation, elaborate a little bit about the importance of Indigenous representation um, in, I think, community in general. Oh, yeah. Just like, well, back when we started, like, there wasn't much representation at all, right? Like, you had 
we had one day, <laughs> June 21st, uh, solstice, like summer solstice, like that was it. And like uh, in Vancouver at that time, uh, yeah, the indigenous peoples took to the certain pockets in the city, right? So you didn't see a lot of indigenous people downtown. You didn't see a lot of indigenous people on the west side. Um, you kind of saw them around like commercial drive area near the friendship centers. Uh, near Britannia, like where the indigenous focus schools were. So there wasn't a whole lot of um, representation out there at the time, right? Like there, this on Canada's birthday, Canada's 150th birthday, there was this explosion of indigenous like hunger of like they, people wanting to know more about us. But when we started, it wasn't about that. There, there was no, um, for non-indigenous people, but like having those girls see it at that time was really transformative and having uh, the art aspect change them as well because they got to work on a lot of their own dresses and stuff like that like yeah it just really meant the world to those girls and to see not just like because I'm like pretty pale right like I'm a pretty pale indigenous person and then having someone who's like a dark-skinned person who maybe represents them a bit more in terms of what they look like like representation matters but good representation matters more and um yeah just having to see that on other girls who are like my sisters, right? Like, or my cousins or whatever, right? Like having them see that, like it gives them hope because a lot of those girls at the time, especially telling me like, oh, I'm just going to be like what my mom is or what my dad is, which is like a, someone who uses or whatever. Like I, my, my, uh, my future is predestined, right? And having to see that it's like, there's hope. There is, you can kind of do whatever you want to do. And that's kind of, it's always been the main goal for whatever I do. Representation matters, but good representation matters more. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on good representation? What, what does that mean to you? Uh, well, in terms of like, in terms of like fashion, I sure. guess. Yeah. Let's okay. fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Like, cause there's, there's, non-indigenous people who make indigenous or work with indigenous designers right um having like there's so few indigenous designers out there that are making it like i've met so many designers and there's so much hoops that they have to jump through and then they have to compete with non-indigenous designers for like financing money government grants all those type of things right like uh, that's when I kind of feel like, uh, well, it's cool to have representation because thank you for helping us getting our, our designs out there in terms of like form line art or whatever. Like, thank you for helping us. But now there's so many indigenous makers out there trying to try to fill up the space that other non-indigenous artists have been taking up. Like, why not let us have our time, right? Like representation matters, but good representation matters more. So like having indigenous artists and designer like that is like really important really super important to let that happen and non-indigenous designers kind of like move to the side of it mm. so i think the the words of advice that you you might be getting correct me if i'm, I'm mis misinterpreting this is that for non-indigenous um, designers or models that have been in the spotlight who've made a career out of it 
provide an opportunity for indigenous designers and indigenous models to maybe collaborate in those spaces or mm-hmm. provide opportunities for them to shine and kind of share that spotlight. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. Like even this week, there was a, a call out for indigenous models for like a Dairyland commercial. And uh, I have an, a native modeling agency as well. Right. And they went with like a, a white owned uh, agency. Right. But th- their work is they're, tr- they, they're trying to work with indigenous community and black community, but like we're a BIPOC agency and, but they went with like the non-indigenous or non-black agency. And it's just like the system is obviously broken. Um, representation matters. Like, you know what I mean? Like all those things, they're all connected and having to always fight that is tiring. It's mm. super tiring. So like step out the way for a little bit, like, right. I don't know. Makes sense. I think, you know, this, this discussion on representation and, you know, putting on the first inaugural Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week during Canada's 150th birthday, I think is a great segue in the sense of making sure Indigenous people are being represented in that type of celebration of Canadian colonial history, because Mm -hmm. Indigenous history is Canadian history and vice versa, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think that Um, Indigenous history surpasses Canada as a country. So walk us through the creation story of the inaugural Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week and what enticed you to take on an event of such magnitude. It was honestly, it was the most craziest thing. Like I don't, it it wasn't me who did it. Like it has to be like a spirit that kind of went through me because uh, people who know me and were, were seeing me at that time, like 2017 was I had a hangover from 2017. It was such a crazy year because I was working on a couple of projects that year. Um, Kanata, which was one of them, which was a Canadian heritage grant. Um, uh, the Drum is Calling, which was a part of Vancouver Indigenous Fashion. We were part of that big festival. And uh, I don't know, there, there was like three other festivals that I was working for at the time. And then the same year, my, my brother was murdered and then my a great supporter of mine, um, Bo Dick, was also passed away that year. But prior to that, uh, yeah, it was like a it was like a seven year, like I guess like gathering of really great artists and like waiting for those girls to grow. Like I didn't have an idea. Like this wasn't like oh I'm going to make a fashion week one day. It wasn't like that. It was just more. I honestly wanted to make a magazine first and then showcase all our beautiful indigenous talents through that because at the time there wasn't much there was like red wire which was huge but nothing to do with like fashion because that's like my area of expertise right but um having having to like go through like the bc basically like going to different reserves and meeting with like all the neighboring tribes and nations like that was part of it like I went to Haida Gwaii I went to the Nass Valley I went to uh Heshkwit how's it like all these different places and like we're we're gathering uh all this indigenous talent and that's actually having a relationship not just being like emailing okay do you want to be part of the show it's like I'm showing up and like hopefully you are I'm welcome to come onto your territory and if you're do you want to have like conversation about this thing that I'm doing in Vancouver, do you want to showcase some of your things? And that's kind of like how it started. So you start working with indigenous community, um, starting working with indigenous designers, kind of developing the talent 
with like, cause those girls, I've trained them all, most of them, right. With the help of some of my teammates and just like, yeah, just kind of, it wasn't like something that happened fast. It happened super slow. Right. It was like stirring the pot of like all this goodness of like culture, community, slow fashion, slow relationships. And then uh, when the opportunity presented itself during Canada's 150th, I applied for that grant. I didn't get it, but I applied for it. And it was like a quarter of a million dollars. Obviously not gonna give it to me. It's like, you're this new person. Who are you gonna, who's gonna give me a quarter of a million dollars? But they gave it to the city of Vancouver and they contracted me to do fashion week out of uh, the Queen Elizabeth, uh, theater and I did it honestly on like no money it was like yeah they gave us the the actual theater the lighting and like the sound and all that stuff but like uh everything else like we did it on like a thirty thousand dollar budget which is nothing for uh what we did is probably worth like two hundred thousand dollars because it was like a it was a five-day show the show was five days right and you have to pay the models there has to be food um, a lot of people who were part of the team at the time worked for free. Like there was no money to be made. Like everyone did it at the love of their hearts. They believed in the the message of like um, just sovereignty and we're, like walking in your beauty, walking in your finest and like showing that we're still here and we're going to fight for ourselves. Like that was like the most beautiful thing that came, like, that came out of Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week and the murder and missing women and bringing attention to that. Like all these things were getting hit like anti-racism, like all these things, market, uh, indigenous makers, like it kind of like woke up uh, during that time in BC. Like it, I don't know, it was pretty crazy. It was insane. I'd like to uh, just take a moment to acknowledge part of those elements of your story that you shared about your family members and, you know, their passing. I want to just make sure that um, I'm acknowledging that and uh, my heart goes out, of course, to you. And I think um, my question to you at that point goes into mental health. Oh, yeah. How do you manage your mental health? And then how do you help support the mental health of these young girls that you've been working with? Well, okay. So, like, prior to 2017, I was fine. <laughs> I was healthy. Uh, 2017, um, during Fashion Week, I, uh, like, two months prior, uh, my back went out and I couldn't walk. Like, I couldn't walk during Fashion Week um major health problems uh i took 2018 off like i didn't do i would lots of people wanted to push for vancouver indigenous fashion to have their second coming in 2018 i was like i physically like i physically can't like i want to um so yeah basically i didn't take care of myself <laughs> like i didn't my mental health was definitely in like distress um but like you know you kind of have to go back to your the grassroots of things of why you're doing them like obviously I questioned everything I did after everything that happened and like you had to process like you just did this human humongous like human experiment and with like because it was the year of reconciliation which ugh, doesn't mean anything right but at the same time um yeah like you, you're inviting people into like appreciate your community and then also like I don't know it it wasn't it wasn't what people thought like I, I guess during potlatch too or ceremonies things go wrong in the back and no one sees it right but yeah there was just like a, it, I was honestly drained like spiritually energetically I was drained and that's why 2018 didn't happen but I did come and help uh Toronto I come I came and helped 
Stage with her Fashion Week in Toronto. And then we had ours in 2019 again. So it kind of like recalibrated. 2019 happened. It was also amazing. Our red dress event was gorgeous. We had it at the Orpheum Theater. It was like everything was all red. And um, just like the stories with, um, with Lorelai and some of the people there who wanted to share their story about their murdering missing relative was really important and we we tried to bring in like the youth aspect as well this year with uh, or 2019 we tried to bring the youth aspect because like obviously we have a bright future as indigenous people okay mm -hmm. so what were some of the things you did to recalibrate um well i tried to i guess like since i'm a huge uh community member i kind of like backed away a little bit to be honest like I stayed home a lot by myself. Um, yeah, just like healing because I had to do a lot of work on my back, like having to like, you know, get your, you know about this, like working out, you have to get your core back. Because I would, right? Like, honestly, I've been sitting at a computer for a long time and that's not good for you. So like sitting is a new smoking, right? Like it's not right. good. Um, so just like getting back to eating healthy, eating a lot of game meat, um, eating good foods, like, not drinking like anti-inflammatory diet like I tried it all like seeing medicine people medicine women medicine men uh getting massages like a lot of self-care stuff like I was really trying to get back on track with like um the stuff and also like I honestly take too much on like learning to like ask for help was like my 2018 learning right like I had like a couple really amazing people close to me at that time like Ellen and Neil like she was making, cause I couldn't, she knew I couldn't walk. So she would show up and like, she'd make sure I had food. And, uh, luckily, like, luckily I have given so much to the community. The community came up and like helped me, which was really awesome, which was really beautiful to see. Right. Cause yeah. When does that ever like happen in a non-indigenous situation? Right. Like if you're taking care of your community, the community will come take care of you. And that's exactly what happened, which was really beautiful to see. Amazing. So, and yeah. like you said, you came into 2019 blazing. I mean, that red dress, you know, special that you did for the opening event for your second inaugural, I think was incredible. And I think you kind of already explained it, but an another aspect of your second inaugural Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week was futurism for your second night. Like, why mm -hmm. did you choose that theme? Well, I, I well I guess it's just like you think about it now right like who knows what's going to happen to the world right who, who knows like this indigenous futurism thing could be very real in the next like five to ten years right like people I don't know what's going to happen to our government like all these things right and that's kind of where my head was already going before the pandemic even happened right like I was just like well like we can only go on this like journey of consumerism for so long right like there's going to be a time where we're going to like need to change the way we eat and live and talk and all those things. Right. So that's kind of like where my mind was already going pre COVID. Nice. I, I would mm -hmm. love to see indigenous futurism take over. I'd love to see the matriarch take over and I would love for that to be the new reality. Uh, mm -hmm. Huge advocate for that. Um, so now that we're, we've discussed, you know, two years of you putting together and hosting Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week, 
um, let's get into a little bit of appropriation and appreciation because I think mm-hmm. those are important aspects as we wrap this conversation up. Um, what does that mean to you and how important is that? And like, I'm going to back up one step. Let's, let's lead into this conversation by asking, what is the difference? Like, how would you differentiate Vancouver Fashion Week from Indigenous Fashion Week? Uh, well, Vancouver Fashion Week, I don't know. Like, Vancouver's not a fashion hub, right? Like, I don't know. Canada is not the spot, to be honest. Like, Canadian fashion. Like, I guess there's roots and stuff like that, right? Like, um, but yeah, I, I feel like Indigenous people have an inherent, like, maker, like, artist, right? Like, inside of them. So when I go to Vancouver Fashion Week, like the obviously the fashions, they're beautiful. Like Jamal, who the guy who runs it, brings people from all around the world, and that's cool. But like, there's no identity because there's just so much different stuff happening. So I feel like Indigenous Fashion Week, there's a difference between because there's something so ancient about it. There's something so ancient about our designs and um, who we are as people. And there's like a spirit attached to our clothing that's like because it's slow fashion like most of the stuff that we show is slow fashion so it's just different there's a there's a different spirit that's attached to it not like vancouver fashion week isn't beautiful because it is but it's a lot fast fashion it's like like all those eurocentric fashion weeks are all going belly up because there's no spirit attached to them there's nothing there's nothing attached to besides this like the runway show and it's over right but if indigenous fashion is like your anti-help helped you make whatever you're wearing like your family is involved like there's uh kelly bafti at zertza she showed her she showed her line but her whole family worked on her collection like from the Taltown territory and like those are the stories that keeps fashion alive it's like if you go make your fashions out of like a factory like what's the importance or the significance of that like yeah it's cool and we're all wearing like nike and whatever right but like at the same time like there's like an, a spirit and energy attached to something that's handmade and slow made and your family is involved and your family's seeing who you are and all that stuff. So that's the difference. I love what you're saying. I think there's, there's um, some questions I have in regards to like, you know, pr- production and scale of an indigenous designer. Like, you know, you talk about slow fashion and I think that is a significant point to make. And I also think that, you know, the idea of Canada not necessarily being a a fashion hub. I'm starting to see a vision here that Canada is actually the hub of Indigenous fashion. And I think that is where things are really going. So I think that is really inspiring to have as part of our conversation here. In regards to slow fashion, I think I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more. I know you touched on some key aspects of it. Mm -hmm. But I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit further on slow fashion, um, because I think that's a significant aspect when it comes to how indigenous designers or, you know, those who are involved with accessories price their products. You know, some people may seem that it's a little bit high. I mean, you can go online and get a pair of earrings for 65 to 85 dollars that was hand beaded. But there's a reason why they're at that price range, because Mm -hmm. like you said, they're slow fashion. So just elaborate a little bit further about slow fashion and the significance on what that has in the fashion world itself yeah like a lot of like another part of fashion week is getting everyone sustainable and paying their rent right like um like my good friend like Shosho Squiro like 
she puts hundreds and hundreds of hours into her out like her outfits her collection and like she should be compensated for it like there's no way that she shouldn't be making 20 grand per dress because it's made out of 24 karat gold beads right um just so like when you're buying fashion maybe like don't buy like the t-shirt that has a navajo print from like forever 21 like save your pennies and get something that's like well-made that will last for a long time because a lot of these people who do slow fashion stuff does last for a long time right like it's made at a hide or sewn really well right so just knowing what you're paying for and like paying the artist and having that reciprocal relationship with artist and like buyer is really important so just like know if you're wanting to buy like a bunch of stuff like just maybe just buy one or two items that are really well made and then have a spirit attached to it that's I don't know, like things that can go down your family heirloom, like you want to keep those things, right? So kind of when you're thinking of buying something, think about that. And also buy from an indigenous designer or a real artist, right? Like so they can feed their family. I love that. I think, um, you know, there there was a comment on, on the chat um, actually from my mother, Cleo Big Eagle, and she just kind of was highlighting how she loves the description of spirit and intent and the idea of slow fashion. Um, you know, I'm, I've been fishing for um, a photo that was taken of me in my regalia. And I think, you know, talking a little bit about regalia, appropriation and appreciation, we start to see the distinction of what that means. The idea of the intentions that go into creating a design or creating something fashionable for the public to wear or for an individual who makes an order, there's that intention behind the design and the work that goes into it. So for for those listeners, um, help us differentiate appropriation and appreciation and how to, you know, differentiate that distinction. Yeah, maybe like, obviously with like regalia, like certain regalia, like certain things are not for public consumption as well, right? Like, if your stuff is more in a ceremony, you might not want to wear it. Like you might not want to put that in a fashion, depending on the person, right? Like it can, if you feel like it's, it's going to gain more energy, if you showcase it in that way, that's totally fine too. Like, I don't say no to that, but like, yeah, just having that. And then like, like I keep on saying, like buying from an indigenous artist is so important. Like I can't stress that enough because I just have so many friends and designers that are, are struggling, especially during COVID, right? Like having to feed their families and that's appreciation to like indigenous people and paying homage like and like not saying that you shouldn't buy from us either you can be non-indigenous and still buy from an indigenous person and as long as you know who the artist is is the other part right like you're just not unconsciously buying it from so and so like you maybe like learn the artist's name where they're from that's appreciation cultural appreciation that's like wearing a obviously like a headdress is not <laughs> right? Like we all kind of like, we've all kind of seen it now, right? It's been like, and then the world is changing now, which is awesome. It's so beautiful to see. And that is like, I don't know, that's kind of the work that we're all kind of striving for anyone who's in this kind of work, trying to wake people up and not in like, oh, like, like, like in a, in a beautiful way, like trying to wake people up through beauty, mm. as cheesy as it is. But no, that's, that's not where really. 
I don't think that's cheesy at all because when you when you bring up waking people up through beauty, I think that was part of the experience that you provided those young people that you've been working with is your intentions behind using beauty as a way to help them be woke and you know be able to introduce them to indigeneity and indigenous people and indigenous role models, indigenous representatives. I think that's a very important aspect. And I love what you said. I really hope our listeners pick that up. I love what you said when you made the statement of purchasing indigenous is a way of paying homage. Mm-hmm. I think that is an amazing kind of way to describe a, a path towards reconciliation, a path towards how we can be part of the solutions when it comes to, you know, colonization and indigenization moving forward. For the listeners out there, you know, purchasing indigenous in a way is purchasing the authentic version of Canada. Mm-hmm. Kind of think about it. So what are your thoughts? Canada on or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Indigenomics. Which is so like what like on also like on another level, Vancouver Indigenous Fashion Week is like all about indigenomics and like doing everything in like a ceremonial, like not like it's I wouldn't say it it is a ceremony, but I wouldn't call it like a potlatch, you know, because we on the the coast here they do potlatches, but this like having that ceremonial aspect, of, like we ha- during Fashion Week we have an elder present, like all those girls they're not just like thrown in there. We've been with these girls months prior to Fashion Week getting them ready, um, getting like running programs that are also like, like I said, we're making button blankets, we're doing ribbon skirts, we're doing something that represents them. So once they get onto the stage, they're not as nervous because they kind of know who they are and they can be proud of like who they are and who they're standing and standing in their light at that time. Right. So it's just like the fashion week is kind of like, like, I guess like the end recital, if you want to call it, but it's like the stuff that's happening before that, that's like, that's the good stuff right you you're creating community with a bunch of young people and then they get to you know they get to show the world how beautiful they are at the end of it right i love that i love what you're sharing in regards to how important the work prior to fashion week is when it comes to specifically working with young indigenous models i think mm-hmm. that support system um the exposure and the preparation to being on stage really helps boost their self-esteem off off air before we went live we had a brief discussion just kind of sharing common interests and common paths of working in fashion and how i've hosted an annual art music and fashion show and to be honest relating to what you're saying that was one of the the favorite parts was all the rehearsals you know the the photo shoots that went in before the fashion show took place um, the laughter that you heard, the um, excitement that you witnessed in the preparation to getting on stage and, and, and doing what you got to do to really showcase the beautiful designs from incredible um, fashion designers. So I really love what you had to say about that. So I appreciate you sharing. And I think in closing, I would love to hear your perspective along the lines of what men can do to support our women. Um, both in the fashion industry, uh, in the community, and probably also professionally? Hmm. Well, I was, I don't know, I was just thinking about this today, because I was just like, man, I was raised by men. <laughs> like, my mom, like, my, my mom is fun, <laughs> to say the least, right? So I got like three dads, right? <laughs> so like, men in my life have been super awesome, to be honest, like, uh, women have been awesome like obviously amazing as well right but yeah I think just like holding space 
not letting like it's the same thing like follow spirit don't follow ego it's like the same thing over and over again like creating um space and helping protect our women even though we can protect ourselves we can protect ourselves too right but just like being there um and just standing behind us and around us that's just like i guess that's the only thing we can really ask for and like you know everyone can learn everyone can change there's like like yeah having everyone needs to heal too like men too like our girls yeah and men too like we, we all go through the same thing how has having men in your life supporting your journey impacted your life well i think it made me a major athlete um <laughs> yeah like nice yeah i just i don't know like I, yeah it just made me i don't know made me comfortable made me comfortable because it's a man's world right like if you grew up with that many men and it's a man's world you learn to protect yourself a lot earlier you you learn to like okay like my, my dad like okay baby this is going to happen to you right like he would prepare me for cat calls or whatever right so i always kind of grew up with like the intent of not being afraid because of my my father's right so yeah just not having that like i'm sure that's not the same for everybody right like um definitely like made me a fighter i loved like boxing and all that kind of stuff right like so i just think it just kind of made me have my masculine side very strong as long as my as as, as much as my feminine side because i'm kind of like a tomboy right like i play ball i kind of go towards like masculine clothes and like that's like the world we live in now right like everyone's like gender fluid and it's beautiful and that's kind of how i always felt inside but like now we have something like it's been named something now so having um lots of men in my life i just think it kind of made me balanced i guess feminine and male like mm. masculinity like that's i don't know i guess that is that an answer <laughs> that is totally an answer actually i feel as though I'm very inspired by what you said, and it, it, it's really sparked my curiosity uh, on what you said, how it helped reduce fear in your life. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think potentially having men behind you, supporting you, beside you, um, can help our women reduce that fear factor. I really mm -hmm. think um, it's piqued my curiosity to see if, if that is a, a common trait amongst other women who've been supported by men who have strong uh, positive men or male role models in their life. I'm, I'm very curious. So I'd love to know more about that. So I appreciate you sharing. In closing, Jolene, please share any words of advice that you may give a young person wanting to get into the fashion world as a career. Okay. Well, no, it's not easy. It's going to be hard. You're going to fail a couple times for sure. And like nothing comes easy, right? Like fashion week took seven years making the first one right and i can only imagine like making clothes a, a clothing line and trying to make money that's going to be another like five five years before you start seeing any real dollars right like yeah just know that you just can't give up because if i give up during fashion week at any time like we only had thirty thousand dollars and we had like 20 staff to pay like 20 20 models to pay pay the food we couldn't even pay everyone who was working on like as a like a team member of fashion we couldn't even pay everyone like and like the train has already left the station right like we we're, we're on the train we're all on this train just know that it'll, it, if you keep working at it and you actually have all three aspects of the the architect the critic and the dreamer 
then you got it made. And as long as you can take criticism too, like that's like the, the main thing. Well, one of the main things, right? Like having all those things, there's, that is the best advice I can give you. Just keep on going and don't give up. Yes, Jolene, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing. Once again, follow spirit and not ego. I appreciate mm-hmm. your time. I appreciate your contribution. And uh, I hope that we can stay connected. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll find each other on the basketball court out in BC at some point. All my uh, relations uh, basketball tournament in January go. coming down right. after COVID. Let's see what happens. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So again, thank you so much. I appreciate you and uh, travel safe. Wash day. Thank you. Okay.